0: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by former Prime Minister of the UK, Tony Blair. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist, ExpressVPN, and HelloFresh in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, James, two big domestic stories. One, whether the Democrats can get a compromise reconciliation spending bill through Congress. And in Virginia, can Terry McAuliffe stave off a tough challenge from Glenn Youngkin, the former private equity CEO and an on-again, off-again Trumpite. I am cautiously optimistic now about the first. It's not going to be quick. It won't be easy. There are going to be more hurdles and more traumas along the way. Uh, but I really think that they, they are on the right path to enact, I don't know, a $1.9 trillion dollar bill, which won't be all the liberals' wish list, won't be all my wish list, but it'll be a you know, pretty good measure. It'll be very important if they get it done. Uh I am cautiously optimistic about that but I am cautiously very worried about Virginia. When I I'll yield to your expertise on that but it just looks to me like Terry is almost on the defensive now. I I have the opposite feeling.
1: I mean uh I think that uh... Youngkins, uh you know break you know, Steve Bannon that little flirtation with him and then going around the state with Amanda Chase who's certifiably nuts. Uh, They got a brutal negative up on on Yunkin about Charlottesville and the insurrection. Uh, Look, it's going to be close. I'm uh, telling you I'm confident, but I I, I would say I feel slightly, like 2% better today than I did two days ago. Uh, I did some focus groups for the Bulwark. You can watch it on their podcast, the focus groups. And it was all people who had voted for Biden, and but were not yet voting for, for Terry. And uh, the, the anti-Trump, the Trump stuff keeps them, keeps them away from yunking. And uh, the, the thing that I noticed, and I, I, I told the campaign, no one knows, you just, you, just, you just thought he'd been governor four decades ago or four years ago. I mean, I don't remember anything that he did. He was actually quite a productive governor. And... Maybe they should close with, with something like that. But the the, the anti Trump stuff is very effective. And I don't, Terry hadn't made any mistakes. I, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's going to be close and could lose. But there's nothing that upsets me anymore now. If anything, I might be a, a touch better, a touch more optimistic, but just a touch.
0: Well, um, I hope we, we we can all take your optimism. I'm still. I'm well,
1: st- I, I would I I wouldn't call it optimism, but if I had to bet today, I, I would bet on Terry, and he's got a good campaign. Everybody tells me his campaign manager is a, is a top hand, and the state party there is probably one of the best state parties in the country. They have all the money; they raise a bucket load of money, uh, and you know, it would certainly help if they were able to get this deal home. That would help a good bit.
0: Well, I, I think uh, it was encouraging this week on the deal front. Uh, it's not there yet, uh, and I spent enough time on Capitol Hill to know the way these things work. Uh, there'll be optimism optimism on Thursday, and then on Friday, it's falling apart. Then it'll be come back together. That's still those that that uh, path is not uh, is not finished yet. There's still going to be some of that. I think in the end, the Senate's going to do it. It's going to be less than, as I said earlier, than the progressive wish list. And then I think it'll be up to Nancy Pelosi to somehow charm and strong arm some of the lefties that, uh, to say, hey, whatever it is, a three quarters of a loaf is better than nothing. I think some of their decisions I would question uh, if, but, you know, it's up to where the votes are. Uh, I think to only extend the child tax credit for a year or two. Uh, and, and to do Medicare expansion to dental or vision and others, I, I think that's a bad trade-off for political reasons because I think the Medicare thing is a great issue to run on in 2022, to force Republicans to say, are you going to you know, support expanding Medicare for vision and uh, dental? That child tax credit, if the Republicans win control of either house in 2022 and they extend it just for a year or two, uh, it ain't going to be extended. And it has already taken millions of kids out of poverty. I wish they were doing more than that, but you know, as I say, it depends on where the votes are. Things look better than they did a week ago. So
1: so let to do something, to help me with this. There's there's one tranche, and that's the deal that they are working on that, that Senator Matt and Senator Sanders are now working together to try to hammer out. Then there's the bipartisan infrastructure deal, all right? Which the bipartisan infrastructure is about a trillion dollars. So and I know that the House Progressives said they don't—they're not going to vote on that first. But if Pelosi can get them to do that, well, if you get a trillion there and you get 1.8 trillion a deal, trillion, well, don't you
0: have 2.8 trillion? You got. Well, don't forget about the earlier uh, uh, COVID package, which was what 1.1 or 1.2. So you're, right. you're talking four trillion. Uh, yeah, it, it,
1: at, at a at a cons- at a conservative figure, and, and most of the stuff. In the bipartisan infrastructure plan, is I've read and buy, it, it seems to be perfectly reasonable stuff that the country needs. The one thing <clears throat> that I think they need to push hard, and they need to get business out front of this, I think this labor shortage is real. I mean, go try to get your car washed. Uh, you know, you go sometimes you go to a restaurant. It takes it takes a long time. I, I see restaurants down here that are having to close one or two days a week because of labor. Well. In and in a lot of women are leaving the labor force. Well, if you had that day, if you passed that daycare, that, that, that stuff, first of all, really improves outcomes for children. And you would, you would free up large segments of your labor force to go back to work. And I don't know why <clears throat> McDonald's and Target or Walmart or God knows what, all these people are, are, are not out there coordinating with the White House. And telling people why this is not socialism, but this is good for capitalism—it just makes all the sense in the world to
0: me. And I, I never hear that argument be made. I agree. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and universal pre-K, which is a companion to that, really, universal pre-K is as is, is state law in Oklahoma and in West Virginia, James. I don't think that's a radical socialist idea. Uh, and it would it would you need child care to begin with, and then when kids get to be three and four. Uh, they ought to be in school. And that would make a huge difference in getting some women, particularly, back to the workforce. And, and there's
1: study after study after study that says that children who go through this, and it's easy to do because you've got a control group, people that do and people that don't. The, the children that go through this do significantly better than the children that don't. You probably save money over a period of time with daycare and universal pre-K. You probably I don't think an economist would argue with that. I
0: think it's important to get to get that done substantively. It it will make a big difference in a lot of struggling families. It's also important politically. You talked about the impact it has on Virginia, but the Great Ann Selzer just came out with a poll this morning, her Grinnell College poll. Boy, is this country today in a pessimistic mood. Uh, I mean, 52% say they think the country's going to the economy's going to get worse over the next year. It's not But that's what they think today. And they are down on just about everything. Uh, Trump uh, Trump versus Biden, uh, 40-40. But 20% say in a country that usually you line up with 95% of the people making up their mind, 20% say, you know, they don't know. They want someone else. Things are so bad. But the other thing is they don't have confidence in a lot of things. The Supreme Court and Ann Seltzer's poll for Grinnell College, I think it's 62%. I'm, I'm looking for the number right now say the Supreme Court makes decisions on politics, not the law. Uh, and I'll tell you, if you're up there, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, might not be a bad idea to take a look at that. But I think people are, oh, by the way, 52%, 52 two to, to 14 say there is a threat to democracy in America. I think they're right about that. But uh, this is a very, very bleak outlook, and I think Congress getting something done giving people some assistance when it's much needed I think that might make a difference in that outlook
1: well first of all I'd like to know who the 38 percent I don't think that's not that, that, you, you think these guys are going to like read a law book and then say well, this is a this is this is what the stare decisis is and this is a case law and back no and i go back to the same thing and all went back to Bush v Gore and when went and Everybody said, well, that's the law, and just go along with your lives, and they've decided. And and they looked, and they said, we can do whatever we want. And they just have gone about and done whatever they wanted to. They don't give a shit what's in a law book. And the country has got these, these people figured out, and figured out well. Uh, you know, the, the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Number was, you know, I was reading an article by you know, well-credentialed economists to say every time the number gets this low, it, bad things follow. Uh, I, I think that the I agree with you, and this actually would be sort of good news. I think the economy, some chance the economy is going to improve, and if it does and it starts beating expectations, then that would be good news for Biden. Very good uh, news. If, in, if, if in fact, it, it, it's better than people think it's going to be, I. I I, I don't know, and, and the COVID does look like it's getting better. You know, if they get this package through, and these COVID cases continue to decline, and they figure out some things with the supply chain and the labor market, you know, we, we, we could be in better shape than people expect.
0: Well, and that's good. Um, actually, uh, that's far better than meeting expectations in many ways because they're going to sure. say, man, I thought things were bad and things now are really pretty good. And some credit voters certainly are going to give to Biden. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a trifecta. But if uh, they get the package through, if COVID continues to decline uh, to the point where we all feel pretty safe going out, and I start they start vaccinating children, uh, and the economy does what experts like Roger Altman think it might do, uh, that's a that's a very impressive trifecta if they can pull that off politically.
1: Absolutely. Let's, you know, let's see. But I, you know, the, the thing I think it hurt more than anything else is people were really optimistic in late May and early June. I mean, it, it looked like the virus was, you know, in a rearview mirror. It, of course, it was no such thing. Now, it's, it, it's, to be fair, it was not Biden's fault, but that's just the way it works. And I, if if it continues to decline, it can take some, you know, the, they're pushing the vaccines pretty hard and, you know, any good distribution and start vaccinating children. But th- th- this this whole COVID thing is, I, I don't know if this nation wants to get better. This has been the most depressing thing I've ever gone through, where you have a pandemic where it lost three quarters of a million people and, and they're still fighting about wearing a mask or getting a vaccination.
0: Hey, James, before we go um, in this segment, I think we have to. We want to, rather, mention Colin Powell, who uh, passed away this week. Uh, by the way, he passed away. Uh, he had COVID, but he passed away uh, because he had cancer and Parkinson's and was immunocompromised. So the, the Tucker Carlson's in the right wing, as they see, it shows the COVID Uh, Shots uh, uh, don't work uh, is absolute, you know, absolute lie and bullshit. It's what you expect of them. Colin Powell was really an extraordinary story, uh, uh, an American story. A kid from the Bronx who went into the when he went into the army in the late 50s, I guess it was. uh, It was Truman had integrated the armed services ten or eleven years beforehand, but it was still overwhelmingly white, and all the commanders were white, and he rose. In that to become you know, national security advisor joint chief of staff secretary of state the tarnish the only tarnish i think really on his record was the iraq war which he knew was going to cause a problem but being a team player he went along gave that testimony before the united nations which ended up deeply flawed that hurt him he knew he knew that uh, and i think that's a real shame but I remember one time I was interviewing him. This must have been seven or eight years ago for Bloomberg Television. It was Memorial Day, and we did it at the Vietnam Veterans, and we were there, and it was unbelievable. Everybody who came by would would stop and talk to him. Some with tears in their eyes. He was an American icon. He had that one big flaw, but I think history will be kind to Colin Powell.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I knew him not, you know, better than an acquaintance and less than a friend, but I. I've been around him 10 times in my life, and he, he was a total gentleman. He was totally squared away, you know, and he used to give these running to each other on the corporate speaking circuit. And you know, man, those those corporate people he would give these inspirational can-do speeches, and he was quite good at it. Uh, I, I, I promise you, uh, you're right. And, and what he did was is he believed the Bush people. And repeated what they said. And that, that Colonel Wilkinson, who was his top aide, was, you know, you could tell he was just livid about it. And you could tell that Powell was livid about it. That they, and, and remember in that speech, he scratched it, he took a lot out. You got to remember He went to the to, CIA
0: to find out what kind of intelligence Cheney and Libby were giving him. And he found yeah. that half of it was wrong. But the problem was that the half that yeah, he left yeah, in also was partially wrong. wrong. Right.
1: and... No, it's one thing like you, you like you make a mistake and you don't and you deny. It. In, in his instance, he made a mistake. He knew it and he felt terrible about it. And you got to give him credit for that.
0: Well, he was, uh, as I say, an incredible American story. Uh, Left. What did Trump say? Did not Trump do something? Trump, totally yeah, classless? everybody praised him. Everybody. I mean, Biden and Bush and McConnell and everyone except for Trump. Look. Okay. Uh, Trump is such a petty, small uh ego i mean insecure (laughs) egomaniac that trump trashed him said uh you know he got us in a bad war he was he wasn't even a rhino of course there was only one reason trump did that because he endorsed hillary and he endorsed joe biden yeah i yeah i
1: i I mean you you were too easy on trump but anyway (laughs) we don't have enough words in english language to describe that
0: yeah yeah As winter approaches and the year comes to close, there's nothing better than a great book. But if you're like us, James, you want to learn as much as you can, and that's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks. You can digest them in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into politics with titles like A Promised Land by Barack Obama and A Short History of Brexit by Kevin O'Rourke. They've blinked thousands of titles in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, and we know you all do, they've blinked those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. James, you're a big fan. I, I, it's just like I said, the damn thing is designed for somebody like
1: me that has ADHD and trying to read three books at a time and have trouble contracting. The thing I would like to know is who, how do they do this? I, I mean, because it, if you know the work and then you read what they do, you say, well, gee, I wasted a lot of time reading 400 pages when, you know, I, I could read this in 15 minutes, but, how do they do it by an algorithm or they, they power people or something?
0: The people that do it are really amazing and quite good at it. I mean, really good at it. No, they are. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer, James, just for War Room audiences. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash war to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash war or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, we want to welcome a very distinguished guest from across the pond. Tony Blair was Prime Minister of the UK from 1997 to 2007 while leading a resurgence of his Labour Party. He now runs the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, and he is a proudly boastful grandfather. Uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Prime Minister, thank you so much for being with us. You've been very worried about combating terrorism and authoritarianism around the world. When you look at Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia, China, Russia, Trump's domination, the Republican Party, it it, uh, you're focused on global change. It seems things sometimes aren't moving in the right direction.
2: Yes, it's 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 difficult right now because there's a there's a move towards greater authoritarianism. I mean, you see this in China particularly, but also in different parts of the world. And there's, I think, for the first time, there's a an assault on the idea of democracy as being the best system of government. We, you know, I, I used to go in different parts of the world and have conversations with leaders, and they'd say, look, we're not a democracy now, but that's because we're not at the right stage of development. But in the future, this is where we're going to go. And so just give us a bit of time and space, and we'll get there. Um, and that's not the case anymore. You, you, you will meet leaders who say, we've looked at your system, doesn't seem to be working very well. <laughs> so that's a big change, I think, and a dangerous change for us.
0: And I guess the question is how you combat that. Um, you've thought about that a lot. I would, certainly Donald Trump's isolationism, America first, wasn't, uh, wasn't helpful. Has, has Ken Biden, or,
2: or can Joe Biden change that? And what else can be done? The single most important challenge for democracy is efficacy. It's showing it can deliver. So, you know, we often talk about democracy in terms of its values, and those are very important in terms of rule of law, the protection of individual rights and so on. But in the end, people expect democracy to deliver. So I think President Biden's got an opportunity to do that, but people need to see the thing working. And in many different parts of the world, particularly as politics in the West has become very partisan, very divided, People think it's so divided, it can't get things done. And therefore, especially in a fast-changing world where you need decisions taken and implemented, and they need to be done on the basis of what works and on clear, rational evidence. You know, If people see the system not delivering in terms of their lives, then they say, well, okay, you tell me it's a great system, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything for me. James, jump in. Yeah, so so, Prime Minister, this is one instance in your country
1: where that actually was a democratic decision, and that was Brexit. And by any imagination, of course, I get my news from the Financial Times and the friends that I have in London who have, But by any measure, this thing has not worked very well for 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 the citizens of of the United Kingdom. How do you is there any way to get off of this hamster wheel that that you're on? Or are you just stuck with this sort of
2: foreseeable future? Well, Brexit we're really stuck with for, for the foreseeable future, I think, yes. And that was the a, a decision that was taken. I mean, it's an interesting concept because virtually, you know, well, all the former Living former prime ministers were saying, this is a really bad idea for the country. Um, The business community on the whole was saying, this is a really bad idea for the economy. Um, Most global leaders were saying, this is a really bad idea for your country. And people said, yeah, well, that's fine, but we're actually voting for it. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, we are stuck with it, it, but there's a tendency in the UK to think that having taken the political decision to leave, that's the end of it. But in fact, it's the beginning of it because we're now dealing with the economic and political consequences of that decision. Now, I happen to think now it's been taken and it's decided you're gonna to have to try and make the best of it. And there are things we can do to, 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 to forge a, a future for ourselves that's independent, but still strong and successful, but it requires a lot of big decisions. And at the moment, the risk is that people kind of think, well, that was just a political thing, it's been done, and now we just carry on as as usual. Well, we can't, because it's a decision that has ruptured half of our trade was with the European Union. And we can change our, our political relationship with Europe. We can't change our geography or our history or our values or our interests. So... You know, this is, uh, this is work in progress for us. I think that yeah, I always right. used to say to the people that were opposed to uh, President Trump in the US and would say, no, it's much worse than the US. And I'd say, yeah, but you can change your president if you, if you don't like it. But having taken this decision of Brexit, that's it for the future generation. And we, by the way, have a very big age divide in British politics today. Two thirds of the over 65s voted for Brexit. Two-thirds of the under-35s voted against it. So there's a big generational gap.
1: Yeah, but the, the under-35 have to live with it. The over-65 don't have to live with it for very long. That's what my kids say. <laughs> I, I can't let you go because there's uh, this fascination around the world, but particularly the United States with the royal family. And, of course, you were prime minister for 10 years, and you had many instances where you had to interact with the queen, uh, particularly made f- famous in the movie about uh, the death of Princess Di. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the Queen is like? Is, is that protocol is okay? Can you just discuss what she's like in person, or to to, to deal with? Or just some kind of insight into this, this question?
2: I know it's it's a you spend all your time on these great political issues and you know geopolitics and. The, global strategies. and Actually, you discover in them what people really want to know is what's the Queen like? Yeah, of course. I'm trying to ask the question so, to our
1: audience. I mean, I can only
2: tell you what she's like with a Prime Minister, but, you know, she's a very um, she's very gracious. She's always absolutely on top of what's happening in the country. Um, I mean, I found a talking with her, she was always very shrewd about the country, you know, she has a great feel for it. And the first time I met her when I was prime minister, and I came in to see her, she said to me, uh, well, my first prime minister was Winston Churchill, and that was before you were born. <laughs> 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 you, know, you realize you're dealing with a bit of, a bit of history as well as an individual. But no, she's, she's, you know, she's very uh, beloved of the country and she, you know, her defining characteristic was really her commitment to duty, actually.
1: Well, thank you, Prime Minister. Uh, I I know that our audience is is, is actually every American is kind of fascinated. It's awful awful hard to
0: to top that question, Mr. Prime Minister. But let me ask you just a couple things. Uh, You led the Labour Party to a tremendous resurgence back in 1997. Uh, I think it's I think it's easy to say Jeremy Corbyn was a disaster for your party. The new leader says he's moving the party more to the centre. Uh, Is it working? What's your
2: critique? Well, he has moved it significantly. Um, I think we turned a corner after our recent party congress. But, you know, the road ahead is still very difficult. And I think progressive or what we call progressive politics, that's center-left politics, um, the world over, faces a substantial challenge because... If we're not careful, we can end up, and this is what happened to the British Labour Party, we ended up with an economic policy that was old-fashioned and not very attractive, and a cultural message that was new-fashioned and voter-repellent. So if you're going to create today a, a governing coalition, you know you've got to have a strong forward looking economic message and you've got to have a cultural message that whilst it advances progressive causes takes account of where people are takes account of common sense and makes a virtue of being open to dialogue and and creating an atmosphere in which people can disagree without feeling you know that they're being disrespected or cancelled or or, or treated as, you know, outside of um, the, the limits of reasonable contact. So it's a, you know, there's a big challenge. And where where the the liberal or progressive centre-left side has gone to the centre, it's basically still succeeding. I think that's the reason why Schultz succeeded in Germany recently. You've got Macron who succeeded in France very much from a centrist position. And... You know, my view is that the public, even though social media and a lot of the discussion in Western politics is now highly partisan and the media has become very, very partisan, I still think basically the problem is a supply problem and not a demand problem for what I would call smart center left politics. It's, you know, if you deliver that type of reasonable proposition, You know for the future um in a reasonable way you can still defeat conservatives but you can't defeat them if you go off on a um you know a a sort of tangent to the left that leads you to be culturally alien for people and with this as i say this pretty old-fashioned economic message that it might be doesn't really work for people in today's world
0: let me bring before we go let me bring you back to your primary focus these days which is combating terrorism Uh, And you were critical of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, as many others were. Nicole Powell, the celebrated American general and diplomat who passed away this week, you worked with him, you knew him well, you all had a very good relationship. He told Bob Woodward, and I quote, the Taliban are willing to fight and die for their country. That's why I don't have any problem with us getting out. We can't go from 100,000 troops down to a few hundred and think that'll prevail. Obviously, the outcome there is, is bad, Mr. Prime Minister. But doesn't that say something? I mean, we can only stay in a place for so long.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree. but. I think, look, first of all, by the way, I, you know, I respect both President Biden and Colin Powell and the people I, I, I know, and I um, I was very, very sad to hear the news about Colin. He was a, an amazing guy and someone I, I like very much and enjoyed enormously working with. I just think the, the way I look at the world, and I've learned a lot in the time since I left office. You know, one of the things that's a bit shocking sometimes is the amount you learn when you get out of that extraordinary pressure cooker of being in the decision-making role and you get out and you, you see the world. And so I'm, you know, I, I'm not saying the word major mistakes made post 9-11 and so on, but I I think what's important to realize is that All over the part of the world, that's the Middle East and beyond, and I include Afghanistan in this, there's a big struggle going on in which we have a real interest. And that struggle is within majority Muslim countries. Do they go for what I would call religiously tolerant societies, rule-based economies where people can grow up in some reasonable stability where you can develop businesses? Or do they turn to a politicization of Islam and turn it into a a narrow-minded political ideology, which then tries to govern that society, that economy, and everything that moves within it? And in that battle, and Afghanistan's one part of that, it's very important, I think, we understand our own security is bound up with the triumph or eventual victory, I hope, of the modernizing forces within those societies. So I think you can debate what we could have done in Afghanistan, and I think there were different options we could have pursued. But my more general point is to say that wherever in the world that battle is going on, it's not one in which we don't have an interest. We do have an interest. It's very much in our interest to make sure that those societies uh gravitating towards what i would call that more open-minded that more tolerant that more respectful of different view of the world
0: james you want to wrap it up for this fascinating <laughs> conversation that's all- I, I, do,
1: that's, I want to wrap it up because i want to talk about uh, in 1992 uh by a dear friend of mine and i know he's a dear friend of yours he tragically passed some years ago philip gould uh, spent a lot of time in little rock and uh you know and i knew alistair campbell you were gracious enough to even receive me at 10 downing street and i you know you've you, you have such experience and in such a wisdom do, do, do you think how optimistic are you as that that this democratic experiment that we've been through in the united states and western europe how fragile is this whole idea right now or, or should i stop worrying about it um well,
2: that's a good question jimmy and i i you know, Philip Gould was a, a huge fan of, of yours. And, of course, we all, <laughs> we all watched your campaign back in the day, right. <laughs> thinking this is what we have to emulate. You know, this is the gold yeah, yeah. standard. But um, if you'd asked me at any point up to about five years ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have said, look, for God's sake, don't worry. It'll all sort itself out. I, I, I'm, I'm a little more concerned today. I'm not saying I've gone right over to the other side, but I no longer, when people say to me, "I think Western democracy could be seriously disrupted and and undermined," I'm no longer dismissive. A few years back, I was pretty dismissive, and I'm not that anymore. And I tell you why. It's, this is this is my worry. Democracy has a spirit as well as a a form. You know, the form is you turn up and you vote. But the spirit is you regard the people whom you're fighting in an election as your opponents, not your enemies. And I reckon there's a large part of Western politics today that looks upon the people that they're opposing in politics as enemies and not as opponents. And once you do that, it's a short step to then delegitimizing them, and then as an even shorter step to saying they don't deserve to govern, period, no matter what votes they got, because even if they did get the votes, they got it through some trick or fraud or whatever. So I see those elements in a lot of Western democracy today, and that troubles me. I I still think, on the whole, I come out... More positive, more optimistic than pessimistic. But I'm not in the same place I was a few years ago.
1: Well, th- thank you very much, Prime Minister. And uh, if before any of your people can see that uh, Philip's family, I, I, I'd love to, see, you know, if we could send them a copy of the conversation we had about him. Well, they would love yeah. to speak with
2: you. I'm still very close yeah. to them and a great family. And he would be very proud, by the way, of how well his daughters right. have done. Oh, that's, that's great. Thank you, you have so been much, terrific, Prime Mr.
0: Prime Minister. This has been a fascinating conversation for our listeners. Uh, I wish you well in all of your quest, and uh, particularly uh, grandfatherhood.
2: Thanks very much, Al. Thanks, Jimmy. It's great speaking with you. All the very best. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Sir. Okay. Bye bye.
0: With the pandemic still ongoing, few things are more important in our lives than the internet. But it doesn't matter which Internet service provider you have, ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. And even using incognito mode, your data and searches are getting out there. It doesn't matter how many times you clear your browsing history, your Internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when we're at home, you never want to go online without using ExpressVPN. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit and keeps your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even smart TVs, so there's no excuse for not using it, right, James? Yeah, you know, I mean, some people out there probably have, like, Google
1: cannabis near me,
0: all right? <laughs> or, or some people, you know. I'm not going to go on everything I, they might do, I'm just James saying, together. I'm not saying, I, I'm just saying it could be
1: somebody out there that is Google cannabis near me or somebody out there might have, be interested in, in, in some things on the Internet that you you wouldn't want your, your next door neighbor to know. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Except James Carville would never do anything like that. But in case you are one of these people, you, this seems to me like a, a really valuable product and everybody is hacking
0: everybody now. Oh, of course, James. That's right. James. Yes, That's of course. Right. No, we've talked uh, about uh, that a lot. Uh, anyway, most of the time, you don't even realize you have... ExpressVPN VPN on, it runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com warroom war room, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash war room. Go to expressvpn.com slash war room, or look for the link in our show notes to learn more. All right, James, now for those terrific questions that come from our listeners, and the only bad part of this segment is not being able to get to all of them. But we start with Deb in the historically famous town of Concord, Massachusetts. She said, why wouldn't it be a good idea to take all the health-related proposals out of this Build Back Better bill up on Capitol Hill and put them in a separate bill and challenge the Republicans and some of our corporate Democrats to vote against them directly so their positions are clear? Doesn't such a big bill, which the public doesn't understand, allow the Republicans to just wrap it all in socialism? And why don't we separate these bills? James Carver. Go ahead. you have much more of a legislative... Well, no, I mean, you, but you have thoughts on this, too. I mean, we both have agreed right. that it was uh, a, a mistake to talk about the size of the package rather than, rather than the specifics. Deb, you ask a good question. Uh, it's hard to take up these bills separately. You have all sorts of procedures you have to get through in both houses. I do think they are, you know, I I, I think right now they're getting to a pretty good place. And uh, I think some of those things they don't get to though. And picking up on your theme, they can run as great campaign issues in 2022.
1: Right. I, I look. I think they. I'm highly critical. I don't think this thing was sold very well. I don't think it was. I think a, a lot of this is the press. I mean, Bernie Sanders put it out, in this obsession on the number. The hell with the number, all right? You you know you got the trillion in the relief. You if you get the trillion in the bipartisan infrastructure plan and you get 1.8 trillion but and you make a good point but they're going to cut some of this stuff out well if you pick up a couple of three senate seats which is not impossible and the, you know the economy gets better the covid gets better who knows you pick up four or five house seats not impossible then you can do and you you can run on things popular things that didn't get done that they want to do in the next congress uh, yeah, there's nothing in this obsession with getting the whole number now, which you're not going to do. you be not doing any good to go attack Senator Mansion or even Senator Cinema for that reason. Is I would leave some of the popular stuff out. You know, if I had to take stuff out, I would I would take a popular thing out and say we're running on this. I, I'm, but I'm really big on this daycare. Now, I really think that that really really would help people would help children, would help parents, would help businesses, would help the future of the country and everything. That, that pre-care and daycare and pre-K and that kind of stuff is just
0: – that's more essential than any bridge we're going to build. And and in addition, the child tax credit, uh, which is mm-hmm. w- which literally, if they, if they extend it for a couple of years, would take, by some estimates, as many as 8 million kids out of poverty. Uh, uh, you, you put those three together, those are the essentials. So, You're right about – other things. Listen, we're in our base state mode today because Linda in Holden, Massachusetts. So she's worried, actually panicked about state legislators' efforts to change state laws to transfer authority over state election procedures and results away from independent election officials, either a board or the secretary of state, and give it to state legislators who can then overturn the election results. Would it be possible to use a ballot referendum in these states to pass laws to prevent this? No, in most of those states, Linda, unfortunately, you can't get a referendum. But boy, your panic and your fear is absolutely justified. Georgia has done it. Other states are moving to do it. It is really as anti-democratic as you can get. It's saying, hey, we're going to have a bunch of elected politicians decide. In Georgia, for instance, they can go and say, you know something, Fulton County, we don't believe that vote. We're going to throw it out. So guess what? Donald Trump carried the state. Uh, It is really outrageous, I think. You'd like to think it would be contested in court, but with this Supreme Court, you can't count on it, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, I hope if they pass the voting rights bill, they can put a provision there that'll limit it. But boy, this is a real challenge, Linda. You're absolutely right. I I, I agree with every word you said. And and
1: there's a significant part of this country that just doesn't want to get any better. And they're willing to discard democracy totally to get their way. And you can see that being written in these laws, and in, you know, in Texas, they're not even—they're not even very secretive about it. Look, the, the demographic trends are going to us. We're going to pass as many laws to stay in power as long as we possibly can. And the danger of that is is that the, polit- the body politic keeps getting more diverse and more democratic and you're trying to hold on to power through these anti-democratic means, that's that's a mixture that that could go very poorly down the
0: road, and people need to understand that, very poorly. Yeah, it sure can. Uh, James West in Athens, Georgia, the the home of the number one Georgia Bulldogs, uh, asked, he said, Am I naive uh, or could redistricting not be devastating for Team Blue? Uh, I also realize the fix is already in from the 2010 redistricting, so Democrats already are behind the eight ball. Uh, how bad could these gerrymandering redistricting become?
1: I, you know, there there is a sense that you know Illinois, California, you know places like that they they could really do well. Virginia, uh, of course, when Democrats get into office. They do the responsible thing. They say, hey, let's have a, a, a commission. All right? So you get the usual suspects, and they try to draw d- districts that make geographic sense. And Republicans get in the office, they just blatantly like they did in Texas. They, they just draw them for, for nakedly political purposes. And, of course, the Supreme Court is totally fine with that. The Supreme Court could give less a shit about anybody's right to vote or be represented in Congress. But it, there are some people who think it's not going to be as bad as we originally feared
0: yeah, now, now California has a commission too, so you're not going to get any right. any any gains there. And uh, Illinois, New York, and Maryland will all set it, but they have more. There are more states: Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, where they control the uh, the uh, the levers. And and I talked to some people; say it could be as many as seven or eight seats. It depends on the climate next year. If they pass that bill, there is a provision in that in that uh, Senate bill, the Mansion bill, now. That if they can uh, if they can bypass the filibuster would uh, at least p- prevent some of this. So, uh, but I think she raises a good a good point. I think it's it's worrisome because they are they are playing games. Uh, uh, James, our next question is from down under, Andy in Canberra, Australia. He said, surely when and if Trump runs in 2024, the Democrats need to run ads featuring. Uh, the Donald's own words and images of January the sixth, ending with a tagline along the lines of "Democracy is, is on the line. Every vote counts." You know, Andy, I um, I wish I were confident you were right. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm just afraid that some of this stuff this doesn't matter uh, to those people, and that Trump, who I think is the most evil man we've ever seen in American politics, has a an ability to. Divert, uh, demagogue, uh, distract. Uh, so I don't know. I would, I would pay attention to those ads. I'm not sure uh, a lot of people that matter in swing states will.
1: Uh, yeah, but it, it it certainly, you know, would remind people of the awfulness of Trump. But yeah, but people, uh, yeah, I hear this shit a lot. You know, I don't like Trump personally, but, you know, his policies were good. What policy he had that was good? If, if you are like me and you think that the two most gut-wrenching, awful, god-awful problems that we face today are inequality and climate, he was an utter disaster. The only way that you think you like Trump's policies is that if you don't think inequality is an issue and you don't think climate is an issue. And then, what, did you like his appointments? I was reading this article of his cabinet, you can't get over when you stop and do inventory of exactly how scummy and buffonic they were. I mean, you just can't get over it. There was a great piece in maybe it was in New York or New York magazine or Atlantic or one of those places that went through all of his cabinet picks. But these were some of the worst people in the United States. You, you, you can't make this up. So, but that, that drives me nuts when I hear people say, "Well, you know, I I, I didn't like," and they say, "Well, you know, the economy was good on him." Actually, the last two years of Obama had higher higher growth and had higher employment than the two years before March of twenty twenty. And we just, Democrats just see the fact that, well, they're good on the economy. And the, Alan Blinder, who's a friend of ours, wrote a book. It's not even close. And then, well, you, California's all, well, actually, California grew at 21% the last five years. Texas grew at 12%. I, I mean, so much of this mythological bullshit people go along with. There was nothing about his policies that were good. They were horrible. And his Cabinet picks would have worse than the history of maybe I don't know who James Buchanan probably worse. Well, on the so I, I just can't get over that. I can't get over that shit when people start me on that.
0: On the economy, the real growth was higher in both um, uh, some of the Obama years and the last seven of the Clinton years. The uh, the unemployment rate in the last two years, uh, Barack Obama came down from six five to four five. Trump then inherited that and it went down from four five to three five. To quote Ann Richards on the economy, Trump was born on third base and he thinks he hit a triple. He didn't do that. Tax cut didn't do a didn't do much of a damn thing for the economy. But uh, that's the myth they spread, and uh, that's why it's important they get this bill through. COVID comes down and the economy starts bouncing back. James, they spread it because people let them spread it. Rebecca and Ann Arbor, Michigan, one of my favorite towns. Again, we're in football season. The Wolverines are undefeated. In a late-night campaign stop, JFK gave an impromptu speech in the steps of the Michigan Union in Ann Arbor in which he introduced the idea of the Peace Corps. It was in October of 60. In March of 61, he established the Peace Corps by executive order. By the end of that year, volunteers were serving in five countries. For all the talk, Rebecca asked, of getting things done in Washington, well, that is how you do it, James. Why can't Democrats act faster with popular programs?
1: Uh, I, I I don't know <laughs> because we never if if and I I went through this in the Clinton administration. it go through it now. and on tell me. We always thought well, this is the best we can do, and you know, and, and, and the, the ninety-three economic stuff. It drives me crazy. Well, you you know, this is this is not the greatest thing, but it's better than what we have now. You know, in uh, the Biden stuff, they, they don't if you're selling you got to sell like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and and there's just tremendous reluctance again everybody in the democratic party every commentator every staffer every cabinet member every columnist every everything wants to say well it's just kind of most good and bad well you don't sell shit like that you sell shit by talking about it, it, the only thing about trump that I remotely give him credit for. Of course, he's completely full of shit, you know. But he, oh, this is the best thing you've ever seen in your life. You know, I mean, how many fraudulent, you know, real estate deals he's in with that. But everybody, to a person, the culture of center-left Washington is, well, it's not great, but at least it's better than what we had. And you just can't sell shit like that.
0: It's also harder to do some things by executive order uh, than it uh, than it was back in JFK's time, uh, but that's a very it's, it's a really good question. John uh, in Sea Ranch, California. This is this is one for me. James it says newspapers and magazines are being destroyed on purpose by hedge funds, and is collateral damage by social media. Why can't Congress require Google and Facebook? Uh, etc to pay a penny a piece for every article or opinion piece that is read on their platforms. John, I think I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, I hope they pursue it up there. These these awful vultures starting with a place called Alden Capital which now owns I think it's the second largest newspaper chain in America. And there's a great piece in the Atlantic by McKay Coppins of what they did to the Chicago Tribune. They come in and they buy a place uh, and then they strip it they uh, move their the offices. They reduce the staff. They increase the price short terms to increase their cash flow, and then they sell the real estate. And the newspaper either dies or becomes a shadow of its former self. And you're right. I think Google, Facebook, and some of the others uh, are have bear some responsibility here, and they ought to be. Uh, uh, they ought to be levied. There ought to be some kind of a levy, uh, and they ought to go to help uh, uh, newspapers. I think frankly the business model isn't very good in a lot of places and we're not going to save many but local news the demise of local news is one of the contributing factors to the problems with democracy in america
1: i yeah it's in it, it, I, I see it wait well, you really get it let's just say you're in i don't know okay you're baton rouge
0: all right right
1: so, so yes they they will cover the state legislature and they'll cover the, the mayor and something like that but what they used to do that they no longer do is the, the, the ascension parish school board meeting or you know the 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 airport commission or the sewage and water district i mean there's no coverage of that right and human nature is if nobody's watching <laughs> you know it, it unsurprisingly you're gonna you're gonna have more Corruption more graph, you have more everything, and you know somebody's uh like pro public I think they're pretty good you yeah. know, but there's there's a limit to what they can do, and i i, I don 't know how you're going to get this kind of you know coverage back, I suspect even a you know paper like the washington post it, it has trouble in their metro covering you know prince george's county uh like, the, like, like they could, but I, I just think that's one of the downfalls. I mean, people will always be there covering the Congress, but, it's, but a lot of market business goes on in this country is at a lower level. Well, no, it is.
0: I've gone and, to a bunch of conferences on is investigative reporter, or is, is investigative reporting dying. No, on a national level, it's not. I mean, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal are uh, you know, as robust uh, uh, as ever. In some cases, they're more aggressive. But what's going on at the local level, uh, newspapers and places that, hold these officials accountable, are are really dying. And that is a huge problem. You're right, when there's not a spotlight on you, when you don't face accountability or scrutiny, you're much more likely to make bad decisions and corrupt ones. Boy, I
1: I tell you, I think it was on NPR. I was listening to, they had a report in the Washington Post on these Pandora papers. Right. God, the reporting hours that went into that uh, are, are just stunning. And I mean the resources that they had to commit to, to un, they literally like unrank, unrank a bell. And you're right. Some of the times stuff that they have on on particularly on the insurrection, I mean that that's that's real. But I'm not a journalist, and you, you've run numerous bureaus but boy that, that 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 takes a lot of resources and a lot of work to, to put something like that out
0: or look at the stuff the times did on trump's taxes uh, uh there was yeah. you know three or four reporters spent well over a year I remember years ago when the great Dana priest and others did a piece on um, walter reed and the terrible problems oh, yeah, of remember reed. That well. they took i think seven or eight months on that story and just think of how many, and there was a great story, and think of how many lives are better today because of that time. But that takes time, <laughs> money, uh, and resources. And you're willing to say to a reporter, all right, you go spend a lot of time on a story. And you know something? Every now and then that reporter's going to come back and say, hey, sorry, it doesn't, doesn't hunt. It doesn't materialize. Right. Uh, and if you're a paper with some resources, you can do that. If you're a small paper without any resources, you can ill afford that. Right, and it looks like to me, and
1: I, you would notice better now is that journalism has become like everything else in the country. It, the rich are getting richer, and yeah, the rest are not doing very well. No, that's well. true.
0: It's true. And yeah. uh, but yeah. but I kind of like the idea of uh, slapping, uh, uh, having Google and Facebook pay a penny a piece or whatever it is. I haven't looked at the efficacy of it uh, to newspapers yeah. when they use their stuff. I mean, they're they're freeloaders. Um, James uh, Derek in Edmonton Alberta Canada uh, I've been there that's really uh, it's a nice place people think of the west and east coast of uh, Canada but the country it's, it's just it's, it's beautiful country uh, but Derek asked, given the intransigence of Cinnamon Mansion, I'm wondering why Biden hadn't focused on turning a couple moderate Republican senators close to retirement to support his plan. He could offer them ambassador postings or some other plum jobs, effectively freezing out the two Democrats. That's what LBJ would have done, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, it's different now. It is. <laughs> I mean, it, and, you know, they want to – when they retire, they want to open a lobbying shop. I got to tell you – Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, he He speaks out a pretty good bit. Oh. He said, I'm not for Trump in 2024. And that, that takes some elo modicum of coverage that, courage to happen. He voted for he, impeachment, he didn't five. he, James? He did. Yeah. He did. Like twice. He's That's an honest in, in, conservative. Apparently, yeah. he, he is. it's and, and, in contrast you
0: know, to the buffoon you have as the other U.S. senator oh. in Louisiana. And,
1: and, and that guy's got a, a resume that...
0: Like, you wouldn't believe. We're talking about John Kennedy, Kenno. right?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, it's just it, 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 he's a smart guy who's acting like a buffoon. I think Senator Cassidy is a conscientious person who's acting like he has a
0: conscience. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, but. Derek, unfortunately, I think uh, your plan wouldn't work. I don't know if LBJ could have done it or not back in 1966 or 65. But uh, first of all, first of all, your, your premise is a couple moderate Republican senators. Who are the moderate Republican senators? That's the problem number one. And problem number two is James said when they retire, they want to get rich. Hey, keep those questions coming in because they are really good. I apologize for not getting to more. Uh, We'll try to do it next week, and again, again, you're being great telling us where you're from. Now we want to tell you about a delicious meal service that's been the star of our kitchens this year, HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, eating healthier has never been easier or tasted better. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian and the calorie-smart to extra-special gourmet options. And since we all know fall is for family time, you can enjoy recipes like meatloaf a la mom, and one-pot broccoli mac and cheese that make weeknight meals go off without a hitch, saving you time so you can get back to what matters. With options like quick and easy meals, low-prep, one-pan, and 10- to 15-minute meals, there's less time cooking and cleaning up and more time you can give back to your family yourself. HelloFresh fresh also gives you the flexibility you need to easily customize your orders on the app within minutes, and it travels from the farm right to your front door in less than a week. You can change your delivery day, food choices, and plan size, and skip a week whenever you need to. So forget trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit, and that's why James Carville loves it. Eat better with HelloFresh today. Go to HelloFresh.com slash warroom14 and use code war room 14 that's all one word for up to 14 free meals including free shipping for america's number one meal kit remember go to hellofresh.com warroom 14 and use code war room 14 for up to 14 free meals including free shipping we also include the link in our show notes All right, now for the outrage of the week. You know, James, we've talked about a lot of bad politicians on Capitol Hill, Jim Jordan, Elise Stefani, Ted Cruz, and some of the worst governors, Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, Christy Noem. But, you know, college basketball season is, to me, what college football is to you. So this, I want to start. When I want to pick a final four bracket. This of office holders we've neglected, the stupidest lieutenant governors. And from the West Bracket, we have Dan Patrick of Texas. He's the lieutenant governor who said last year it was so important to open the economy that some old people have to die. He, he, he's talking about us, James. And then there was Janet McGeehan of Idaho, a state with one of the two lowest vaccination rates and whose ICUs were at capacity as the COVID virus raised. And when the governor left the state, what did she do? She issued an executive order for banning schools and universities from vaccine or testing requirements. Now, in our final four lieutenant governor stupid uh, bracket from the east, you have Will Asenall. Uh, I think that's the way you pronounce it uh, in Alabama, who said his state is known for love of God, love of country, love of football and love of Donald Trump. I think God and maybe Nick Saban want to recount. Then he said Joe Biden should be impeached, Biden. But the top seed and the stupid lieutenant governors across America got there with this observation. And I quote, Quote, The Black Panther was created by an agnostic Jew and put to film by a satanic Marxist, and was only created to pull the shekels out of your uh, out of your pockets. That was North Carolina's Mark Robinson. So, okay, you war room listeners, cast your ballots for the stupid lieutenant governor of the year. Go ahead, James. All right. Well, last week
1: I, I, I said this will never be topped. It's impossible to top this. Where a uh, Virginia candidate, Republican candidate for the state legislature said, the reason, the way you deal with the rise in sea level, you just take all the boats out of the water. And then he, he came up with the intellectually persuasive argument that, look, when you get in the bathtub, you know, the water level rises. So he, he would, to deny his thing is to deny science. I thought, I will never say, I'll never find anything more stupid than this, but I've topped it this week. Joy Pullman, executive editor of The Federalist, wrote a column arguing that Christians should not treat the possibility of dying from COVID as a bad thing, running the headline for Christians dying from COVID is a good thing. Now, I, I never, ever, ever thought that we would be arguing whether dying was a good thing or a bad thing. And they're so crazy that they say Dennis Prager, who's a you know typical right-wing talk show jerk, said he He tried to get it because he wanted to have it because the immunity was better. Forget that if if that turned out and you were lucky enough to do that, how many other people would you... Inv- I mean, it's, it, it's so stupid, but I always thought that at least we could come together on common ground that you should try to live as long as you can. But nope, that's not it. There, there is a defy. There's a, a pro-death federalist magazine or whatever they are. There's me. I'm definitely not in that camp. I don't see much, much room for compromise there. Uh, it's unbelievable how crazy these people are. I dare anybody to top that.
0: Well, the Texas lieutenant governor was in the vanguard a year ago when he said old people got to die in order to bring the economy back. So they, they, are, they are nuts. No question. Okay. But they would say they should be honored to do it. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist, ExpressVPN, and HelloFresh in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.